Welcome to Cinemakers, Steven Soderbergh. This is episode 15, K Street, from 2003. I am Tobin Addington. I'm Mike Manzi. And I'm Joey Lewandowski. And a confession right up front, I only watched one of these ten episodes because I hated it. <laughs> wow. In this corner, we have Joey. <laughs> and in the other corner, we have Tobin. And I think I'm right sort of down the middle. I know that Tobin really likes this. This is something, this is not news to them, that I bailed on this series so quick. I watched the pilot twice. This is a one-series TV show from 2003, which the more I sort of learned about the production, and Tobin can describe that because I learned from him, the more I was into it, but still on a whole, I was like, I'm good. I made it the whole way through. I'll just let you know. It was sort of a marathon. I uh, binged a few episodes this morning to make it to the end, but like, I, I don't know. Like I liked some of it. We'll talk about where it goes. Well, I guess Tobin and I will tell Joey what happens, you know. But, like, I did not I did not feel satisfied by the end story-wise. But I was, I got to say, I got to admit, like, I was intrigued as to where it was trying to go. Yeah, this is a puzzle, this show. I, I don't, I wouldn't say that I like it. Uh, this is, this is not something that I'm going to put on for fun anytime. But I, I really I really am fascinated by it, and I think it's worth considering. And I think that there are, especially in terms of when you, when you think about the way it was made and the time in which it was made, and some of the issues that come up over the course of the of the show, and and the way that this is the only way you could make this kind of show. I think I, I find it a kind of a fascinating experiment that doesn't sort of ends in more of a whimper. It sort of starts it with a bang for me and ends at a whimper. And I, you know, Joey, it does not get better if you don't like the beginning like it's not like there's some revelation along the way that you're going to be like it's going to you know turn you around but i think along the way there are moments that are really worth the journey Another issue I think that we could all agree on is that the, since this show, and this may have been you know early on in, in inspiration for many of them, there's just a lot of these sort of political, I don't want to say this is quite a satire, but there's a lot of these sort of behind the political scenes shows that have come since then that are just like way, way better. Uh, so going back to watch like the sort of proto version of all of those things like Veep and such in ways, you know, yeah, it's just, it just doesn't hold up to what's come after. And I think that's part of an issue too. I think my biggest problem off the bat was that this is billed on IMDb as both a comedy and a drama. And I was like, why isn't it funny? And then Tobin said, well, it's not a comedy. And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> because the thing that's the most jarring about this is that it's shot... These these adjectives, you might take offense to, Tobin, I'm not sure, but it, it feels like it's shot dirty and cheap and quick in a way that, like, because you're saying that they're filming this week to week to get it out on that week's news, right? Yeah, so this is really key to understanding the show. Uh, two things. One, that the two stars of the show, James Carvel and Mary Madeline, are a husband and wife, real life, political strategist, consultants. He's a Democrat, she's a Republican. And that's a real relationship. That's a real, in the great Pennebacher documentary, The War Room, about the Clinton campaign, you see them, I think you see, sort of see them in the early stages of, the, of their relationship, or maybe they're not even dating yet, where she's on the other She's on the opposing side. And so there's all this sort of fascination, or there was back when this show came out, about their relationship and how they're able to sort of like live together and love one another and be so diametrically opposed politically. So there's that. And then the other thing is that the conceit of the show, the way they did the show, is that they would shoot. My memory of it is it was they'd shoot Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, edit on Friday and Saturday, and release it on Sunday. You would be watching events 
that happened in the course of the week that had just happened, right? So in the pilot, when they, they had debate prep with Howard Dean, then they cut to the Carvel and, and John Slattery, who plays his sort of sidekick, uh, watching the debate happening. And that all had just happened. Like that was within days of the release of this show. And so you were getting a sort of pseudo-documentary, real-life look at sort of politics as it was happening in the moment. And that was, again, remember, this is 2003. This is not a, a moment of political apathy. We, we're talking about the Iraq War has begun, and it was a very sort of politically active time. And, you know, for that reason, I think my memory of it from its time certainly informs how I enjoy it now. I guess the only show that really does something like this. Well, there's, I guess, there's two different times. There's Hard Knocks on HBO, which covers the football preseason. And so they film during the week and then edit and then release. And it covers basically the week before. And that is of interest to me because I, I like the subject matter. But I guess also the only other show that I can think of with this kind of guerrilla filmmaking would be, and it doesn't always do this, but South Park, right? They've been known to cover something that happens on a Sunday night and have an episode out on a Wednesday. So in that facet, I really like it. But because they're doing it so quickly and they have to film a 30-minute episode that's improvised for the most part, or, you know, at least relatively or mostly or whatever, in three days, they have to do things quick. And so what really threw me for a loop, and this is going back to what I was saying a little bit before, it feels like, and it's shot like, and they sort of act like it's a Christopher Guest movie. And it's it's the way they deliver lines, it's the way they jump from scene to scene, it's the way they do this, it's the way they do that. So it's shot in that mockument. I'm sure that a lot of things are shot like that. But my brain, what it went to first was Christopher Guest. And I was like, where are all the jokes? Because the way that it's shot, this sort of improvised, cutting from room to room, sort of, here's these people talking about this thing, here's these people talking about this other similar thing, that's what I had in my mind. So like I was waiting, and it felt like, to me, they wanted to be funny, sort of, and it just wasn't at least for me, and it just wasn't clicking. Like, the way that they were telling the story and the way that they were sort of acting, it just didn't work. And I was watching, and I just couldn't find a way in. I think you hit on something I had an issue with, too, and it didn't click until, like, it took, like, three or four episodes for me for this show to actually, like, start clicking and understanding in a way, like, how it wants me to watch it. But, like, it just drops you into this world of politics, and I really just fell in over my head from the jump. And, you know, you're dealing with these people talk, they might as well be talking another language because I have no idea what they're talking about. You know, they're referring to all these things and these events and like the news and stuff. And it's like, all right, whatever. And I just kind of feel like I've got to go with it until uh, it's like being in another country. And like, you know, after a while you pick up that language and you're able to sort of work your way around the streets and at least get to the airport to get yourself back home or something. So I did have trouble engaging with it initially. What I stuck with it with for was pretty much like the filmmaking style. Like I was intrigued by how they're able to cover current events. I was intrigued with the sort of go for substance over style. You know, like this is just a matter of convenience that we can shoot this on digital and get this out. And it's a good way to do this project. I was just really hoping that somewhere along the line, the story picked up in an interesting direction. I feel like the laughs get there eventually. Like, I find Carville pretty funny, like, just as a guy, as a person, like, being himself. He kind of interests me. I like watching him, like, on talk shows and things. I like seeing Bill Hader do an impression of him on Weekend Update and thing. So there were things in there that were keeping me engaged. And, I, and at one point, I just was like, by episode five, I was like, well, I'm halfway there. I'm just going all the way. And it just, like Tobin said, it ended in, like, kind of more of a whimper. They start getting like investigated by the FBI. 
I couldn't really follow like a lot of what they were doing as a job necessarily. Like I know they're lobbyists, but I really didn't know like what they did day to day that helped them earn money. So like I was hoping some of that stuff would get explained along the way, but it's not. You just have to keep up with it. The only other political show that's on the air at this point is West Wing. And this is sort of the anti-West Wing. And I think going into it, I think, Joey, you were poisoned by learning that someone described it as a comedy. I think there are funny things in here. This is a procedural quasi-docudrama with laughs. That's that's what it is. And the laughs come from as you get to know the characters. And, and James Carville is just such a fascinating guy. I mean, the whole goal was to feel like you were just in the room watching this stuff happen. Like, this, is, this would be happening no matter what, and we just happen to be there. And I think that it's... I don't know that everybody would have the feeling like, oh, this is Christopher Guest. I think some people would think, oh, this is a documentary. Oh, what we're watching is real. Not that it's sort of been staged. And so much of it is real. I mean, that's actual debate prep with Howard Dean. Like, you never get to see actual debate prep with a, a presidential primary candidate. It just doesn't happen. It certainly wouldn't happen today. And to see it, like, the week that it happened was amazing to see. And those sorts of moments, that I, there's a moment later on when they are under investigation, um, there's a, an FBI series, a bunch of FBI agents are interviewing Carvel and Carvel's lawyer. And Carvel's lawyer is played by, I believe, a real D- DC power lawyer. And then you have the FBI agents who were former FBI agents, and they actually, like they're enacting it. They, the, what they're talking about, the scandal they're talking about there is made up. But you can see how when you're under that kind of investigation, you, you're not told what you're being investigated for. So part of the part of what Carvel and his lawyer are trying to figure out is like, what are they looking for? We don't even know, what, you know, sort of what they're after, and the, the disorientation of that, and the way that just sort of learning how that stuff actually works is, I think, pretty fascinating. Like, I almost wish that they went full documentary on this to a degree, or made it more obvious that it was fictional or fictionalized or you know whatever you want to part part fiction based on real events happening at the time and like that was a very interesting scene when he's being interviewed by those fbi agents in the office and everything because i that was one of those it was almost the whole episode and it was one of the moments where you're just like wow like this this is when the show is really working right, for me right. but it took like eight episodes right, right, right. to get there and then thinking back I was like well there were scenes you know that were similar when people were like meeting with lobbyists or like they're the lobbyists but when they're meeting with people they want to represent and they're just having like a lunch or something and you're like oh here's where the show is sort of clicking you almost wish well I almost wished like that it was a little more just go full documentary for me for my taste i think that the tough thing for me with this is that there's obviously a value in seeing the pieces that laid the groundwork for shows and movies and stuff that exist today but this even though it still touches on things like as we're recording this as a whole there's something in the news about people meeting with russian lawyers um that you know sort of feels relevant with the stories of this but like if you're not of that time and don't really know this kind of thing, it's difficult, for me at least, to find value in this when I could just watch a season of Veep instead. That I know that without this, Veep might not exist or Veep might be different or whatever, especially since they're both on HBO. What's interesting about K Street is that it's not on HBO Go. Like, it just it just doesn't, like, I guess HBO just sort of wiped it. And I think even, I'm not 100% sure, but I'm pretty sure, like, even Mr. Show is on HBO Go, and Mr. Show is, like, HBO's bastard stepchild that like they don't want to talk about like that's still up there it's a rights issue as i understand it the reason it can't be on hbo go oh 
rights issue between who? Between the producers of the show. I don't know all the... Huh. When I was in film school and it, the show debuted, Mary Madeline and James Carville and one of the quote-unquote writers, as far much of the show has writers, uh, came and presented a couple episodes and, and talked about that. And there was some... I just remember there being something unusual about the deal that, that they had with HBO because it was such an experiment, right? And the other thing is that we were talking about the raw look of it. That is mostly Soderbergh and Clooney with the cameras. Like it literally was just them them and a sound guy like crawling around the room and trying to grab shots and make stuff up as it went. Like and to work it into the like the actual work that was going on in Carvel and Madeline's you know, life at the time. And in terms of the Don Jr. stuff, that's what's in the news now about the Russian lawyers and everything. The Valerie Plame affair does get brought into this. There's there's some point when, because Mary Madeline had worked in real life, had worked in the George W. Bush administration and uh, was somehow tangentially involved in the outing of, she didn't, wasn't, didn't out Valerie Plame as a CIA officer, but she was wrapped up in that scandal somehow. And that plays here. And at the, at the time, that was that was a huge deal. So I think you're right, Joey, that if you're not sort of politically aware of that moment, it's not going to resonate. It would be the same thing as if you had something happening now and you tried to show, to, to show it to your kids later on. They'd be like, well, I don't I don't know what that means. I don't I don't care. These scandals, as big as they are, are not sort of epic scandals of Watergate or potentially what's going on now that might resonate, you know, for years and years and years. But at the at the moment they were sort of they was sort of hot button stuff. It is kind of like a time capsule of that era in a way because of how quickly like the twenty four hour news cycle has just gotten. Right. right? I mean, right. even at two thousand and where whenever this was airing, like it was, even though it was vaguely like in its infancy, you could say to a degree, like it was still very much like bombarding you with information much more than I feel like people were used right, to. Right. And so like that is kind of interesting that you could go back and look at these particular weeks in history and kind of be reminded of like what was on people's mind and, you know, what were considered scandals at the time and all that kind of stuff. What I like about doing podcasts like this, like Cage Club and Keanu Club and Cinemakers, is being able to go back in time and see these movies and see how either an actor or a director evolves. And then once we see the thing, then going deep in IMDb and be like, oh, like I didn't know that this was what happened or this was inspired by this or, you know, this actor's almost in it or whatever. I feel like with this one, it's so different in a way that it's almost you have to do all that research before you see it. Like, I would have liked to have known before I watched it that, like, it was Soderbergh and Clooney just in the room with the camera. You know what right, I mean? Like, right. I would have liked to know more of the backstory, but I don't, I don't want to do that level of research and sort of spoil things for myself in one way or another before I watch whatever I'm going to watch. Like, I want to go in blind. I want to know, okay, how am I going to trace Soderbergh's evolution as a director and, you know, editor and cinematographer and all this different stuff. And then we get here and the first three minutes are a guy getting his shoes shined. And I'm just like, oh, this isn't like, I, I, I'm, I, I, I don't <laughs> want this. Yeah, I think to a degree that maybe they're a little, they went a little too insider. Like it's too behind the scene it's not as accessible as sort of like a network show would want to make like the west wing like it's it doesn't want you to be comfortable and like get what's going on it wants you to sort of be like did i miss something is something happening but i don't necessarily like feeling that way while i'm watching a show all the time it's got to be like a really good show to sort of put me through those feelings i feel i just feel like they could have they could have done a lot to make it more accessible and not sort of like sacrifice any of their artistic integrity, perhaps, you know, and, you know, maybe just have the character like Francisco who comes in, make him be the cipher for the audience and 
need things explained to him. And that way we can pick up on like who certain people are, what's important, and you know the focus of that episode. So here's the, here's the problem with that is that they, they didn't know in terms of the story with the char- like characters. Oh, okay. Like John Slattery has talked about in the first episode or two, at some point they're on they're on a train and other times he's like just staring out the window and I think Carvel asked him like you okay you like get in the game buddy we gotta you know he has some sort of pep talk speech and apparently it's because that's what's actually happening on set is John Slattery's like I don't have a clue what I'm doing here like I don't know who I am I don't know what's going on so they incorporate that into the show and then come up with the woman in the red dress that begins to appear and his whole deal with his wife and like that stuff right, that, he's a sex addict right right, right. And, yeah. and that stuff all sort of emerged because they were the whole idea is they were going to find that stuff as they went along, and and I, I agree. I don't think it's very successful. I don't. I think there's a reason that they only made one season of this show, and then they would go on to make what was the one that there was. I forget the name of it. The one that Clooney was sort of the lead on that was about um, actors. I think Ben Greenberg was in it, and oh, what's the the, the making the making thing with Affleck and Damon? No, not Project Green. No, 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 no. no. Act, oh, it's the, a different. It's one? this exact same kind of thing, except that you're just watching these li- the, uh, these actors' lives. It's, some, it's got a one word title. It's got something like actors. Anyway. And that's that one was purely they used this documentary style, but was just the fictional story, and they had worked out the story more, and in that way it was sort of more successful in a more narrative sense. I still think that I would rather see Soderbergh experiment with something like this than see the bland version of this show. And maybe what I'd rather see is the much more insidery show where they don't try and wrap anything oh, up, and you're boy. like the Michael Mann version of the show where you're just like <sighs> you're left to your own devices to figure out what the hell is going on. But again, I may be unusual. In that case, Joey wouldn't like that, but I think I, I could get behind that. So between this show and Getting Away With It, the book that he interviews Richard Lester and does his diary while he's making Schizopolis and Grey's Anatomy, basically, I'm realizing that, like, Soderbergh is a really interesting person. Like, I mean, we obviously knew that he was interesting to do for this because he's so unique and so sort of all-encompassing in his projects, but, like, there's just certain things that I'm just not going to click with at all. Full Frontal is that way, and this is that way, and, like, the stuff he's talking, like, the way that he comes off in the book, it's very, like, he's very himself. And in a way that really worked for me as this young guy making sex lies and just sort of being blown away by the reception, here, he's had some success, and, like, he's still that same type of guy, but sort of a little bit, not arrogant, but, like, he's more confident, and it's... It was difficult to get through, and there's there's stuff he's he's done that we're gonna get up to that I love. Like the movies are gonna keep being great, but it's these ideas, it's these passion projects, it's these way that he approaches things. Whether it's a diary, or whether it's an interview with Richard Lester, or whether it's making a TV show like K Street, or a movie like Full Frontal, where I'm just like, oh, like I know why you want to do this, and I like that he's passionate about it, but it's not for me. And I think that it's something that we sort of didn't really see yet when we do an actor because like we, we have an actor in like a bad like a weird or a bad movie you're like oh maybe he just wanted money maybe he got you know like Keanu sort of got like roped into some contract and like he had to be in this movie or whatever here it's like this is what the guy wants like this is the project he wants to make and he has control over all of it and like it's not always going to click for me I guess I'm actually really down with him experimenting with like video and digital. Like ever since the beginning with Sex Lies, it's a, it's a film and video movie. You know, like clearly he doesn't. He's like all for one when it comes down to the media. I like that about him that that he's like nonconformist in that way. That he doesn't need to shoot on film. Like which I like. I do. I like yeah, that about it. Yeah. Yeah. And, but I also feel like maybe with the incredible success that he has had, right? Like 
currently, like which probably opened the door for him to be able to do K Street, to be so close with Clooney and all this stuff. You know, success maybe got to him a little bit, and it was just his chance to say, well, now's my time to kind of go crazy and, ex- and do this show and do Full Frontal, which I like this more than Full Frontal. Like, my problem with that wasn't exactly the way it was shot. It was more just the plot and story and stuff that I didn't really like. Like I said, like, I don't hate this. I don't love it. I enjoy aspects of it, but I almost wish that he and Clooney made another movie after Solaris or something, you know, like kept going in that direction. But well, uh, well the next movie yeah. he does is with Clooney. So, I mean, like maybe this is just, it's hard because like in the book, if nothing else, you realize how much he's doing at one time, especially like, you know, the book sort of covers like 96, 97. So it's a couple years before this, but like he's doing Schizopolis. He's doing Grey's Anatomy. He's doing a rewrite on Mimic. He's doing this project called Toots that was going to be made with Tim Burton that never got made. He's jockeying for Out of Sight. Like he's got five or six different projects going on here, I mean, they're probably already shooting Ocean's 12 or planning Ocean's 12 or something. I can't imagine that this, I mean, it must have been like an intensive thing, but this probably only took 10 weeks, right? Like you did 10 episodes and you're done. There's, There's probably prep, but there's nothing after the fact. These three months of my life are this show. Right. And then while you're doing that, probably in between, he's also, you know, doing casting for Ocean's 12 and all this. Like, it's all sort of overlapping. So I think that this is sort of like a... I, th- I think we do sort of go, Mike, from like Clooney movie to Clooney movie. This is just sort of like a weird sort of road bump, speed bump in between. It's an experiment. And when we, in the actual sense of that word, not all experiments are successful. Like that's the... And that's... I, I would so much rather have somebody who who makes an occasional or even a fairly frequent interesting experiment that fails than somebody who is just bland, who's boring. Like, I know you guys in watching, particularly through the Keanu Club, you've seen a lot of generic movies. Like, you've seen a lot of things that they just don't don't have anything sort of to, no style to stand out. Now, you may not like the style, but one of the things you sort of get with the Soderbergh package is he's going to make some stylistic decisions and then stick with them to the end, whether it sort of kills the material or the material kills him or whatever. And and I think that that's, you know, I, I really do appreciate that about him. And I, I would prefer that. And, you know, I hadn't really thought to warn you about, Joey, that maybe this would be of its time because you know when you watch things of their time when you are that time you forget that it was of a time right like in my memory it's I remember that campaign for president so clearly and so that that stuff that stuff sort of sticks in my head and I I think you know it's interesting to think about where this does fit in his filmmaking DNA You, you can trace it back not just to full frontal but there's that cocktail party scene in D.C. where Michael Douglas is talking to all the senators and representatives. Yeah, yeah, in traffic. And they're having actual politicians in the scene talking to Michael Douglas. And that's clearly is the seed of this movie. That's where this movie comes from. And my memory in the talk that the filmmakers gave after the screening when I was in film school is that in D.C. the representatives were crawling all over each other to get into the show. Like, it was a very cool thing to be on this show when the show was airing. And, and, And we'll see, you know, this kind of experimentation is going to find its way sort of working with non-actors and docudrama style is going to we're going to see that magic mic we're going to see that you know in, in, in movies that don't necessarily feel like they would have that we're going to see some of this movie's DNA crop up in there and I think that sometimes that style is really going to work for him and we're going to see something and say oh this is where that led to and that's I'm so glad he had that crash and burn for Joey experiment that led to this thing <laughs> and other times it's going to be like wow that, that didn't work here either like find a new trick 
Well, I think what's weird to me, and I think it shouldn't be weird, like it should be obvious that this is not always going to be the case, but I feel like both for myself and for like the general movie-going population, you see like a movie poster for an upcoming movie with like an actor on it that you like. You're like, oh, I want to go see that movie because Tom Cruise is in it or Nicolas Cage is in it or whoever. And then you get to the movie and like it's, you know, Nicolas Cage has made 80 movies or whatever with 75 different directors. You're like, oh, these are all over the place. And just because he's in it doesn't mean that it's going to be a good movie. Like how many movies have I seen recently that have like casts that are like five or six or seven deep with people I love and I just can't stand the movie because of one fact or another. I thought even though this is very patently untrue, that, like, with directors, you're much more close. Like, you know that when you see, like, a Tarantino movie, it's all going to be sort of similar. Like, it's going to be super stylized, super slick, violent, aggressive, for a while sort of, you know, structured out of order, all that kind of stuff. Across the board, I like his movies. I like some more than others, and I like some less than others, but so on and so forth. Here, I was sort of thinking, the Soderbergh movies that I'd seen leading up to us doing this, I'd really liked almost all of them. And I was like, oh, I'm probably going to like all these. And then here we are, you know, sort of halfway through our run, and I found a few more that I really like, and I've also found a few that I never want to think about again. I mean, it's obvious that somebody who's made 30 things and is as sort of determined to his vision as Soderbergh is, that he's not always going to make things that appeal to everyone who likes his earlier stuff. But to me, it, it still surprises me when like somebody that I know is supremely talented, that has made things that I love, turns around and makes something like this. And I'm like, oh, I thought we had a thing going. <laughs> yeah. Like, I thought you and What'd I you do to me? <laughs> were like, in sync. Like, right. I thought that you were making things almost, ex- not exclusively for me to like, but what you did I was going to like, or I could talk myself into liking, you know? But I guess another director set that we're going to do later in the show sometime is the Coen brothers. And I guess that's the same thing there. Like a lot of their stuff is really great. And then you get some things you're like, what happened here? So I think it's my own mental roadblock that I need to get past, but it still surprises me when I have a director that I love make something and I'm like, oh, I can't find anything in this that I like. Well, I think what's good about that, about certain directors, when they reach outside their comfort zone, yes, sometimes you get, you know, stuff you can't stand, but then other times you're going to get stuff that's just, like, incredible. Like, they might have learned something from that experience that made them go another direction the next time, but they're constantly, that that Soderbergh is going to, for the most part, constantly just keep trying to stretch himself, like, push himself out of his comfort zone from time to time. Like, he's going to get to a movie with Clooney that, like, takes place in the 40s, and he's like, okay, we're only going to use equipment that was available during this time to make this movie, you know? Uh, The Good German, when we get there. So he could take the easy route, you know, every time. Like, I'm sure he could do, like, Ocean's Eleven half the time if he if he really put his mind to it but he, he doesn't want to do something like that because then it just makes him less special when when those movies hit when you get something like magic mike that comes up or like just something unexpected and you're like whoa he did it like he he reached and he achieved <laughs> but it, it is yeah it's disconcerting when you're so into like a certain director or whether it be a musician or something like that like you know if i could talk you two to you for a second i mean oh, I okay when that zootopia album came out <laughs> i know it's zoropa but but I call it Zootopia. <laughs> you know, people went out of their minds because it just wasn't the U2 that they wanted. I happen to like that album, uh, but that's just an, ex- an example like of you know them just trying to play outside their comfort zone. So sometimes you hit and sometimes you miss, sometimes you get K Street. <laughs> <laughs>
I obviously have no more notes about K Street because my six notes were like, I don't get it. Why is this happening? I don't like this. I'm stopping. Is there anything else in terms of the show or the production or anything that we that would sort of help people? I do think that like there's probably value in this. I don't think this is something that everybody or even most people should go find. If you want to watch it sort of as an experiment, I think that there's value there. But is there anything that like people should know before they watch this that will either be like, a, oh, that's a cool fact, or anything that's going to sort of help them sort of find an entry point into all this nonsense? In retrospect, I wish that what I had done, or what I do now, if someone said, hey, I'm going to go watch K Street, what should I do for homework before I watch it? I would say go on YouTube and watch from those couple months, watch a few nightly news broadcasts to see what was happening in the news at the time. And I think that would be, that would, some of the names that come up, some of the things that happen sort of ring with you a little more, that it would sort of put you in that time. And then just do understand that what you are watching is a time capsule of that period and a real baptism by fire, you know, walk the tightrope kind of production that deliberately was trying to be messy and scrappy and find its way and maybe a little cheeky and and know that it's not a comedy. That's not it's not intended to be veep. Stop lying to me, IMDB. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so that's that's what I would say is familiarize yourself a little bit with what was happening at the time and then know that what you're watching is to be appreciated and f- or for some moments to be maybe not quite revelatory, but you know, like a window into how things actually work and that the rest of it is they're trying he's trying things that he some of which he might used to better effect later and some of which you'll never go back to. I feel like having only seen one episode, but like hearing you guys talk about it, I feel like I either would want this show, like if this show was either more documentary, like I think Mike said, or more fictionalized, I would like it more. Like if, if it was like Veep that sort of tackled, kind of tackles current events but sets it in like a fully fictional world, I think it would be more timeless. But the fact that they're using real people that I'm familiar with but don't really know, it's like, it already sort of sets me off. I'm just like, not, not, it, it sets me off balance. And I'm like, I don't feel like I've done the homework. Like, it's like there's a pop quiz. I'm like, oh, I don't, like, I, I'm vaguely familiar with things, but I don't know enough to watch this. And I feel like if it was nothing real, if it was everything was like identical except, you know, instead of talking about Howard Dean, they were talking about Doward Heen or something. You know what I mean? Just some, like, that. if you were aware of that time, you could be like, oh, that's obviously Howard Dean, that's obviously George W. Bush, whatever. I think it's a cool idea that they're setting it in the real world and you're watching actual Fox News broadcasts or whatever of the debates. But, like, I, I felt like I was out of my depth and, like, especially now, 14 years later, it's like, oh, it's it's this weird, very specific three-month time stretch that I just, I I can't get into. Yeah, I I actually feel like if they had just scripted character beats out beforehand, they may have found their direction sooner and it may have been more clear or realized. Like, that's the thing about improv that's tricky is like, from my understanding, someone who doesn't perform improv, but like hears about a lot of behind the scenes about how those types of shows are made in movies, like there are bullet points and, you know, character backgrounds and people come up with like characters and stories about themselves and then they go into the situation which they have to improvise their way through and work their way through. I think that's how they run Curb Your Enthusiasm a lot, right? Is that like this certain thing needs to happen, but however we get there is up to you kind of thing. And if they had just known where they wanted the show to end, it they probably could have knocked it out of the park. I just feel that that little scripted element would have gone a long way. I don't necessarily think TV is Soderbergh's strength. Like this, the Showtime show, 
he will return with the Nick and the girlfriend experience. So it's just not a format that he has a handle on right now. I think it's something to do with length, like the idea that this the show can just keep going and going, and you know you just have to decide when to end it. Whereas with his movies, they're just they just feel more complete, like they resolve better. Like that to me is the thing. There just didn't feel like there was a resolution here. I, I would have rather just have had the James Carville show and no real actors involved. And you can still, you know, do it like The Office. That would have been hilarious if it was James Carville, but The Office and you know, everything was just unintentionally hilarious because their boss is just crazy. I don't know. Yeah, for whatever reason, though, it just happens to miss the mark. I think one of the reasons those other shows maybe work better than this one or another reason that those do connects with something that you just said, Mike, which is that TV is, and I think this is this is true, is more traditionally a writer's medium and film is a more of a director's medium. And he's not using writers in the way that TV usually uses writers in this show. And when you get a show like The Nick, those writers had that show before Soderbergh became involved. And then he then becomes the creative force behind the direction and how it's made and how it's produced and how it sounds and how it looks and all that stuff. But in terms of the John Emil and his and his co-writer came up with the show, pitched the show, wrote the, the pilot at least. And, and I think that's going to make the shows better as with some of his movies as i've as i've argued before in this podcast some of his soderbergh's best movies are ones where he's had a strong writer who has sort of helped given him something to then interpret through the sort of making of the film you know another sort of descendant of this show is the newsroom on hbo did you guys ever watch that aaron sorkin show i watched the first season because of emily mortimer the creative West Wing makes this show for HBO a, a few years later after after this show, and the premise is that there's a this behind the scenes of a newsroom, and they're going to be using the actual news, but from like three months before. So you're watching like, and it's a drama; it's not a comedy. Although it's Aaron Sorkin, so there's lots of you know quote unquote funny in it. And as that show moved into its second, did it have three seasons or just two? I can't remember. I think it had three. I think as it moved into its later seasons, it began to abandon that conceit of the of the old news. They they created their own news events to sort of which worked so much better because then you weren't having to think back three months to remember what that news was like, and like it didn't you know it just felt so old. But anyway, that show you can see that a little bit of that show, which also is not as successful as as his other work in in K Street. Joey, what, I, what I'm curious about is if you could put this on Letterboxd in the oh. rankings, would you put it at the end or yeah. or? Oh wow! Because okay. I would rather rewatch. Well, okay, so full frontal different things. I would, I think so. <laughs> I wouldn't. Mm, so number one, like the fact that this is five hours long, like I just have no interest in spending that much time with the show. That I'd rather rewatch something that's sort of more compact. Full frontal has like. People that I recognize doing things that resemble things that I like. <laughs> yeah, it has the sound in the Führer. Yes. So that's enough. Yeah, now I'm starting to read. There's things the about that that are like, oh, I could just a little bit more and then we get the Hitler comedy or whatever. Or just a little bit more and we get the Brad Pitt, David Fincher scene that like doesn't work in the movie, but like at least there's that. Here, like I watched the pilot twice and I was just like, nah, I can't, I just can't, I, there's nothing about it. That, like it, it's it, it's not like bad. Like, it doesn't offend me. Like I don't think this is like really poorly made. I, I think that you know for what he was doing, it's sort of like a he's he achieved his vision. It's just a show that I would put on and be like, oh, I'm I don't have a desire to go back to this. So just for time alone, I would put this last generously, maybe a little bit higher, but like not really, not much higher. I probably would too. I, I think I <laughs> you have it last. 
Yeah, <laughs> pro- probably. You're like this show's defender, though. And yeah, I know. Well, that, that, that's what that's why I was. I mean, that's why I was curious because I I think that I you know I, either either last or I would put it like just after Solaris three from the end. Maybe I would watch this again before Grey's Anatomy the the underneath and full frontal. Like maybe I would watch this first. You know, it would bounce back and forth for me, but it's definitely in the bottom like four of the, of the things that we've that we've seen. I do like it better than that other TV episode from the Showtime. Room, yeah. yeah I, it is longer, I know, and like I don't want to lose five hours of my life, you know. But I, I do like it. I do think it's more accomplished than that. That does feel like bland Soderbergh, and that's that's no good at all. But I would definitely put I would definitely put this at the bottom. Like I said, I don't necessarily like this show, but I, I really do appreciate it. I'm glad to have seen it again. But I'm probably not going to watch it again. Because I think that if we were putting together a list, and this is a list, this is a list that I do not like. But whenever there's like the best things, like objectively, like this is his best film or whatever, like I don't care about that. Like I just want to see like what's my favorite. Because in my head, if you're talking about the best film, in theory, there should be one list that everyone agrees on in some aspect. And I think in that kind of list, this is just somewhere in the middle. Like it's not, it's not great, but it's you know, it's it's fine. I just think that in terms of what I like, this is this checks off zero boxes. Exactly. I feel the exact same way. Yep. It's tough because, like, I like this more than, say, the underneath or full frontal. But yeah, I, you know, I wouldn't watch it again before those because of the length and everything. But I'd actually, if he would do like a uh, Soderbergh cut of all of this footage into like a two-hour movie, that might be okay. I might rewatch that one day, but I don't think that's ever going to happen. I'm just excited for his good ventures into TV. That as we're recording this, we are in the midst of watching 26 hours of a Zac Efron TV show for Zac Attack. And so I I'm going to be I'm curious to see how we're going to cover, you know, 20 hours of The Nick or five hours or whatever of The Girlfriend Experience, which is like a show that has things that we're going to like and there's sort of more artistic directorial choices. And oh, careful now. Care, careful about that. Artistic. Tra- there are a lot of artistic choices in this show. Artistic choices that I like. That's what, there we go. Now we're talking. But like things that, you know, that there's more from, at least from me to comment on. And I'm curious to see how we're going to do that as opposed to this, where it just feels like this is never going to, like, does it really evolve or change? Or is it sort of like it's this kind of for five hours? No, it does. It does change. They, they, they begin to find some things that work better. It's just that the story that they begin to weave out of the, the sort of seeds they've planted early on in terms of the narrative stuff, that doesn't really come to anything. That's that's the disappointing thing at the end. They, they begin to build this whole mystery around, you know, where friends Francisco comes from and what his whole deal is and he's working for who is he working for um Elliot Gould and what his whole deal is but but you never come anywhere near an answer to that necessarily and it ends very sort of disappointingly I think Joey what you were excited for is to get to shows that you've seen all of well, I haven't seen those shows. Oh, yes. Oh, but also, yes. That's right. Oh, yeah. Yes. I, I understand what you mean now. That yes. you can stick through. Yeah. That I can actually talk about. Yes. yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I'm excited for that. So any last thoughts, Mike, about K Street, or can we put this in our rear view forever and ever? Uh, yeah, no, I'm, I'm down with that. I don't need to drive down K Street. <laughs> What's weird is that, like, looking for a picture for this for our site, like, there's just nothing. Like, it just doesn't exist. So, like, I, I have a picture of the actual K Street sign in Washington, D.C., because, like... That's all that exists on the internet. So even the internet, like this has been scrubbed from history. So, <laughs> Well, even the DVD is a, um, it's a, it's a standard definition version of a widescreen show. And I guess they matted it for HBO so it looks more cinematic. But when you watch it on TV, or at least on my television, it's like um, a super small letterbox, like in the middle of my screen. And I'm watching the show through like the tiny window. Well, next week we have Eros, which is a 40-minute short 
along with two other shorts that's going to be something romantically involved. So we'll see. We're in a sort of a weird little stretch, I think, for Soderbergh. So this is, hopefully next week will sort of be on the uptick. But then we have Ocean's 12, which is, even if it's not my favorite Ocean's movie, it's a sort of a, another swing for the fences, really big, flashy movie that I'm excited to see again. So stay tuned. I'm not going to be as depressed or annoyed, I don't think. Maybe next week. I don't know. Well, it's only 40, it's only 40 minutes. So how annoyed could you be? I mean, I'm probably pretty annoyed. I only watched 30 <laughs> minutes of this and I already hate it. So I yeah, true, like... true. Fair enough. Fair enough. So for all things Cinemakers, you can go to cageclub.me or facebook.com slash cageclub or at cageclubpod on Twitter. You can see all the shows from the series. You can see all the other shows that we've talked about. This is coming out on Christmas. Merry Christmas, everybody, if you celebrate that. So this month, we also have episodes of Boyfriend Material and Magic Mike's out now. So go listen to those. Maybe there's another show out. I don't know. Things happen in real time. So just go to cageclub.me, facebook.com slash cageclub club or at cage club pod on twitter for all the latest and greatest i'm joey lewandowski i'm mike manzi and i am tobin addington and we'll see you next time on cinemakers cinemakers